You're listening to the Eastside Church Sermon Podcast Series. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, inclusive, and justice-oriented. We are thrilled that you found our podcast, and if you'd like to learn more about our community, visit our website at eastsideatl.org. Well, again, good morning, Eastside. As it is each Sunday, it is a privilege to be with you here in our gathered time of worship, our time of collective standing before, sitting before, experiencing the presence of God with us. And I do have to say, you all look exceptionally lovely on this particular Easter morning. Thank you for that. I think the folks on the stage get, get to appreciate the, the loveliness of y'all's preparation probably more than anyone else does in the sanctuary. This morning, we will be preaching from the epistle, which is the fourth reading from the lectionary. And George walked us through the story of the empty tomb, which is outlined in John's gospel. And we're gonna be reading from a text that is responding to something that happened many, many, many years later in a particular church community outside of Israel in the city of Corinth, where the Apostle Paul had been and had been active in, but had not been with for some time. So he's writing a letter to these people addressing some questions and some discussions and some realities which have arised within the community known as the Corinthian church. So friends, I invite you to stand as you're able for the reading of Holy Scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll begin reading in verse 12 where the Apostle Paul writes to this ancient congregation. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How is it that some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith has been in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that God raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is the case that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If it's only for this life that we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be pitied most. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in its own order. Christ, the first fruits, and then it is coming those who belong to Christ. 
And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Friends, the word of God for us, the people of God. Let us pray. Holy and gracious one, As we continue to worship, to gather in your name, I ask that these words that I have prepared might in this time become your word for your people. God, may you speak through them and where necessary speak in spite of me. And as I preach, God, I ask that the words of my mouth and the collective meditations of all of our hearts would indeed be found good, right, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. God, our rock, God, our redeemer, God, our Savior, all of this we pray in the strong name of Jesus, the resurrected one, and everyone said, amen. Friends, you may be seated. The other, the other evening, we were at the dinner table as a family and One of my children, my oldest son, just out of the blue, and if you know my oldest son, this is not completely out of character for him, but out of the blue says, not to any particular person at the table, but just kind of to everybody, what's the connection between the eggs and the Easter bunny and Easter? And everybody's kind of quiet, and then me and my, I don't know, curmudgeon self said, absolutely none whatsoever. (laughs) We then went on to talk about the pagan origins of the Easter bunny and the eggs and the whole deal. But regardless, we, of course, have still participated in Easter egg hunts over the weekend. But my son was picking up on something important, and I actually appreciated what it tells me about the way his brain's working because he was picking up a disconnect. He knows about bunny rabbits and he knows that the way that they reproduce is not through egg laying. (laughs) So that's weird if you really think about it. He's he's walking through some steps of, of logic, looking at something critically and realizing that all the pieces aren't fitting here. Paul, in this letter, specifically in chapter 15, he's writing to this church community and he's naming what he sees as kind of an obvious problem with the way they're thinking, at least a contingency within the Corinthian community, the way that they're thinking about this Jesus movement of which they have become a part. And apparently this contingency in the Corinthian community has become so large and influential that Word of this situation has made it all the way to wherever it is that Paul's located when he writes this lengthy letter, and he devotes the entirety of chapter 15. We only read a tiny little segment of the larger chapter in Paul's addressing of this particular issue. And what Paul's doing is he's trying to name what he sees as something of a logical fallacy within the way that they're thinking about how they relate to this Jesus movement. And Paul's not a fool. I mean, he was a highly educated person. He, he would have known 
at least the gloss of most of the Greco-Roman philosophers. He would have probably read Plato. He, he knew plenty of the, the broad scape of what the philosophical and, and religious world would have looked like in the ancient Mediterranean landscape. And because of that, he probably had a pretty good intuition of where the problem was coming from, of, wh of which strand of thinking got the Corinthian, at least this contingency within the Corinthian community to the place that they found themselves, that Paul felt the need to dedicate an entire chapter of his letter. Because what Paul's talking about, obviously, is the resurrection of, of the body. And Easter Sunday is our celebration of the resurrection of a particular body. But Paul's speaking more generally to just an idea, right? The resurrection of bodies. Because Paul comes from an ancient strand of Judaism, the Pharisaic strand, which held to this very robust understanding that in the end of time, God was going to raise human beings, resurrect human beings, and then we were going to be ushered into this new, this new era of heaven and earth. This is all before the Jesus event even takes place. This is already a part of their thinking. Resurrection is not some brand new idea when, when Easter happens. But, but what, what Easter does do is it, it changes the expectation around it. It's, it's the strange sort of inbreaking of a thing that they thought was going to happen to everybody simultaneously way off in God's future, and all of a sudden it broke backwards into the present time and space for one particular person. So it is different, it is a little weird and strange, the resurrection of Jesus. But the idea of resurrection, more broadly speaking, was problematic for folks who had come into the church through certain strands of Greek philosophy, some of you maybe have read a little bit of Plato and his forms and his emphasis on the, the, the spiritual realm as opposed to the physical material realm. And it wasn't just Platonic thought, but there were many different Greek ways of thinking that, that kind of shared in common this idea that we're sort of stuck in the mud of this material existence. But materiality is like corrupted. It's sort of debased. It's sort of lower if you, if you think about things in, in the grand scheme. Specifically Plato, he really wanted to emphasize up and out as opposed to getting down and dirty here in, in, in this space with these bodies. Which means that if it's a positive thing to escape a body and to go to the realm of the spiritual, right, the, the mere idea of resurrection, re-embodying the physical world, would seem, it, I guess, at nicest, distasteful. At worst, just kind of absurd. If you're free, why would you come back? Would be kind of the, the mode of thinking. If you've made it out to the land of the spirit, who would want to talk about resurrection, about empty tombs, about a resurrected Messiah who is recordedly, recorded to, to eat fish for breakfast on the shore with his disciples after his resurrection. 
None of that would make, make a lot of sense within the lens that much of ancient Greek philosophy was coming from. The material was kind of bad, spiritual, it's good. So you can see how a religion that, that claims not only the brutal crucifixion of its leader, but then claims that three days later their leader was resurrected by Israel's tribal god, Yahweh, not one of the gods of the pantheon, mind you, but Yahweh resurrected Jesus. You can see how that might seem like a hard, a hard sell in a city like Corinth that's so invested in philosophy and in the, the, the Greek way of thinking. But somehow, it, apparently, it did take root in Corinth, and there was a legitimate church in that community. But like we all do, we carry with us who we are into whatever arena we find ourselves in, and there was a good amount of residual that, that many of these philosophers who were coming to follow Jesus brought with them into this community. And as was the case with philosophers in the ancient world, they, they like to hear themselves talk. <laughs> it was a big deal to, to, to be an order, to be a debater, to, to argue your point. So one can only imagine that they were bringing this into the assembly of the believers, and they were making points and arguing things. And sometimes maybe those points and things were a little bit disjointed with the broader purpose that had gathered them, which was indeed this crucified and resurrected Messiah who was Jewish, raised by Yahweh. But that's the situation in which apparently the Corinthians have found themselves. And Paul, I think, is a little dumbfounded about how to address it. Because from Paul's perspective, he's probably asking, how did they get this far into the, the Jesus way and not realize that a categorical denial of any sort of resurrection would sort of be problematic for a religion that says Christ has died, Christ is, right? How did they not catch this? So he's just speaking in very plain prose and saying, do you not see the blaring problem here, friends? You're philosophers, you're, you're, you're masters of logic. And what Paul goes on to say is, and it's particularly problematic for me, Paul, because I'm a former Pharisee. If you remember the story about Paul, he was on the road to Damascus. He had been persecuting the early Jesus followers, and then the resurrected Christ meets him on the road. He, he ends up becoming blind for three days, and in that three-day span, he completely does a 180. And after he regains his sight, he, he goes from being Christianity's foremost persecutor and thwart her to being its, its biggest fan and purveyor and apostle in the ancient world. And he goes about planting all these churches, and, and Paul regularly takes a beating for doing so. Paul has become completely alienated from his Pharisaic friends and colleagues who did not want to come along the way of Jesus. In other words, Paul's sacrificed a lot for this movement. He's given a lot for it. And when he hears 
this, this idea of a resurrectionless Christianity, they wouldn't have had the word Christian back then, but a resurrectionless Jesus movement, Paul seems like he might even be a little bit offended. He's like, I've taken so many beatings for this. This is really personal for Paul, right? And this is not some sort of like detached conversation, but it's weighted in, in his life. And if you read 15, we didn't get to the verses, but he talks about encountering these wild animals in Ephesus that he, scholars debate, is he literally talking about wild animals or is he talking about humans who are acting like wild animals? Probably the latter. But he says, I wouldn't be doing all of this if Jesus were yet another dead Jewish Messiah. You know how many came before him? A lot. And you know what the, the one thing was that you weren't allowed to be if you wanted to also be a Jewish Messiah? Dead. Like that was the like litmus test. If you're dead, like you're, you're out of the running for Messiahship. Like you couldn't do both at the same time. It just didn't work that way. Because what was the Messiah supposed to do in the minds of the broader culture? They were not supposed to be, as Jesus was, crucified by the empire. They were supposed to overthrow the empire and liberate Israel and return the kingly line of David into power. But we have this Jesus who is crushed by Rome, it's placed in a tomb very publicly. And Paul's point is, y'all, everybody knows that happened. Everybody knows that happened. It was as public as something could be in that day and time. It's a public execution. Do you think we'd all be here if it all ended there? This is what he's saying to these Corinthian philosophers who are categorically denying even the possibility of a resurrection. Paul's point is no. Paul's point is that he himself had this radical, bizarre encounter with the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, and it was an encounter that literally changed his life. His behavior turned immediately. Which that's, it's hard to explain a Pharisee. These guys have been training since they were like six years old, memorizing the entirety of the Hebrew Bible. Like they knew all the law, all the prophets. That they were, they were as sold out to a particular vocation as you could be. For Paul to turn like the way, in the way he did, something something radical happened to the man. The fact that all the disciples didn't just cut and run, but continued after. If you just look at human behavior, something weird happened. Either they were all just completely out of their minds, collectively, all at the same time, or something wild and new and unexpected and out of the ordinary took place on Sunday morning. Paul's point is it's really hard to follow Jesus if your followers buried. 
But Paul's point, the flip side, is that, but we don't. We have a living leader who, as Paul says later in 15, has become life-giving spirit. And his point isn't to speak to a platonic sense of spiritual world out there. The Jewish people had a very different understanding of what spirit meant. Spirit wasn't a, a, in competition with physicality. It was sort of a, an, a reality of life that was sort of on top of, of this reality. So in other words, everything was sort of like interlocked. Spirit, material, they weren't like here and here, but they were like here and here, right? So for Jesus to be life-giving spirit meant that Jesus is closer than ever to all of his followers as he guides, as he walks us along, as he continues to put the path before his people. And I think it's interesting to take this, this ancient conversation that Paul has with these philosophers in Corinth and to pick it up and to kind of bring it into our world today. Because I know that in a room this big, there's probably all sorts of different like, ways that you've gotten into this space this morning and ways that, and from backgrounds that you come to Christianity. And frankly, we're just overjoyed that you're here this morning, whoever you are. But it is, it's interesting to think about if, if you take Christianity and you were to then move it entirely into the realm of the spiritual and, and to say it really doesn't have a whole lot to do with, with this stuff of the earth, bodies and food and, the, and mud and dirt and all the things that were felt to be corrupted. If, if you do that, then, then how can we as a movement, how can we as a people, as a religion, claim to have like any relevance to the world and the pains of the world as they are right now if it's all this sort of like escapist thing? If it's all about getting out of this so that we can go to that? Like how is that helpful for the world right now? And in my humble opinion, I actually don't think it is. I think it kind of makes Christianity narcissistic. If it's all about where I get to go someday when I die or whatever it is. But that's the beautiful thing about rereading your New Testaments, friends, is that if you reread them with fresh eyes, you realize that's not what Paul was saying. That's not what first century Judaism taught. That is a projected reality of, of Christianity mixing with Western philosophical thought. That's a mixture of Plato and Jesus, which creates a really weird stew. <laughs> it does. It does. But if you, if you move that out of the way and you get back and you read it as a first century, through at least attempting to read it through first century Jewish eyes, you understand that what, what is being said here is that yeah, the, we believe that there was an empty tomb because God loves the world and loves stuff and loves DNA and bodies and dirt and food and drink. God doesn't see this world as like a lost project. God doesn't see your body as a lost project, right? 
If it's all this disembodied thing, then like, why do we care about bodies? But if we're talking about some kind of real resurrection of Jesus that somehow included his body, then we're talking about a God who actually cares about your physicality, cares what you do with your body, cares what you do to other people's bodies, how you treat the other humans in your vicinity and the, the, the blessed vehicles that we have been given to walk through this life together. You see, I think that the empty tomb and the fact that there was no corpse to be seen in any of the accounts, I think the point is that Jesus, Jesus went through and underwent some kind of radically new experiment reality that God brought about. And Paul says as much. He says, later in chapter 15, he says that two farmers out there, you take a seed, the seed has to go into the ground, and it has, the seed has to give up its, its seedness if the plant's going to grow. But nobody's going to say, like, but the plant no longer contains the, the identity of the seed. Of course it does, right? But now it's a plant. And we think about the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is not Lazarus. Lazarus was brought back to life and he would still grow old and get gray hair and die. Jesus, he goes the other direction. And Paul says he was like a seed and now he's burst into a plant and he is the first fruit of God's new work. The point being that the God is right now at work creating a whole new heavens and earth. But God's intent is not to like explode this one when like the sun burns out or whatever. But God's intent is to take everything and to refashion it and incorporate it into the new thing that God is doing. And Jesus is the down payment for that entire reality. Jesus is prototypical. That's why Easter matters. And that's why what Paul is saying to the Platonists matter. He's like, if y'all remove any sort of like realness of what God is capable of doing in the real world, then what are you left with? What's the point? You might as well just wait around and then see what happens later. But the New Testament gives witness to a God who cares a whole heck of a lot about this world, about your life, about this part, this chapter. It's precious. And if you believe in forever, it's like a chapter in your forever. It's like, don't write it off. Don't treat it as though it's not a big deal. It's all a big deal. And it's all being taken into God's memory. God cherishes all of it. Nothing is lost. Easter, friends, the empty tomb, the living Christ, it's, it's the... It's the wedding of heaven and of earth, of God and humanity, and it's, it's this brilliant down payment for us. It's, and here's the thing. I can't prove to anyone in this room, I wasn't there. I didn't live in the first century. I wasn't one of the people that peered into the tomb like Mary did. So I live by the witness of others. You all live by the witness of other humans. That's scary. 
because it means that if you bring all this into to our context now, into the 21st century, then the resurrected Christ is, is actually trying to work in you and trying to do just like with Saul, to turn him into a new kind of person. That same activity is happening in every one of you. And every time we let it happen and then we let it work its way out into the way that we are in the world, we become one more little witness to the fact, to the reality, to our faith that the tomb is indeed empty. We actually become the, the witness to the resurrection in this life by how we live and by how we don't live, by what we do and what we don't do. That's profound, that's weighty, but I also think it's relatively... I think it's really good news because it means that everything you do has meaning. Everything you do matters. So don't leave today and just go back to the way that everything was because the resurrected one is always at work, always speaking, always beckoning us. And one of these times, God knows God's going to get through to Tim. <laughs> and that Throughness is then finally going to translate its way out into the way that Tim is in the world. And I'm not unique, which means our call is collective and it's individual. It's weighty, but it's good. So may, friends, we be people of the empty tomb who become good news for a world that really needs us to be good news. In the name of God, the creator, the redeemer, the sustainer, everyone said. Amen. My name is George Howard. And it's a privilege to lead us all in prayer this Easter Sunday. Today, we join with millions of Christians gathering in every time zone of the world, speaking thousands of languages and shouting, hallelujah, Christ is risen. Let us join our prayer with theirs as we celebrate the risen Christ. For those gathered here and those gathered online, let us prepare our hearts for as we pray for ourselves, our nation, and the world. As we pray, you will hear me say, Lord, in your mercy, and I invite you to respond, hear our prayer. Pray with me, please. Holy One who came before us, walks with us, and continues in front of us, hear our prayer as we pray for the world and all of her people. We celebrate with brothers and sisters who langu whose language and culture are different from our own, yet who know your name, who celebrate the resurrection, and call upon you to help heal this broken world. We hear the groans of the planet and the cries of the people. We especially lift up the people of Russia and Ukraine who are at the heart, the epicenter of this latest crisis. We see the result of war in the Ukraine and hear the anguish of our people as they flee, the violence or they shelter in place. We give thanks for the thousands of volunteers who are aiding those fleeing with transportation, food, water, and shelter. They are fulfilling your commandment at great sacrifice to themselves. We see the interconnectedness of the world 
as violence in one country has an effect on food supplies in Ethiopia, fuel in Europe, and even fertilizer here in the U.S. Christ, may your peace prevail and we unite as your people. Lord, in your mercy. We pray for our nation and state and all of our leaders. Help us, O oh God, to see one another as you see us. Help us to listen and to treat one another as your children. May our politicians from Washington to Atlanta feel your presence, pay attention to your words, and seek to overcome the deeply partisan chasm that has for too, for too long paralyzed our country and state from caring for all of the people. Make your presence known in New York to the thousands who ride the subway each day and now step into those cars in fear of yet another random attack. Be with the families of the victims and the perpetrator of the attack. Heal us, O oh God. Help us to find ways of ending the violence in our cities and homes. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Gracious God, we pray for ourselves and for your church. Help us to live as resurrection people, to seek and find the hope in everyday life and not be overwhelmed by the chaos around us, for even there you are present with us. May our witness be strong and true. May our children grow up in a community which values its neighbors, cares for those on the margins, and seeks ways of staying in love with you. Be with us as we celebrate the ministry of Pastor Tim and Elizabeth among us and prepare our hearts and minds for the changes which are yet to come. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your people and let us rejoice in the grace and love which you have shown us Help us to show it to one another, our neighbors, and our world. Lord, in your mercy. Amen. And let us continue as we read together uh, the affirmation of faith written by Pastor Tim. We believe in an astounding God who surprises us on Easter morning who reveals through an empty tomb how overflowingly full of God the creation is. We believe in God, who is light in the darkness, who never gives up on love, who is always working in our lives for good, who weeps when we weep and laughs when we laugh, who calls us to be more than we are, as God relentlessly transforms our tears into hallelujahs. We believe in the Christ, present and at heard in the words of prophets, enfleshed in the birth of a long-sought Messiah, alive in the lessons taught to disciples, not stuck in a tomb of despair, nailed to a cross, or buried in the past, but living forever and walking with us on our journeys today. Seen in our stories, present in everything we can see, touch, and imagine. We believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the invisible presence of God, the joy, hope, and peace of possibilities opening all around us all the time. We believe the Spirit calls us to community, to compassion, to welcome, and to acts of mercy and justice so that the whole world will quiver with wonder and hope. We are people of faith in the risen Christ, and we see our Christ in everyone and in everything. We strive to live in such a way that the world will see Christ rising again in us and through us with the message of Easter. God cannot be contained, not by books, not by traditions, not by institutions, not by tombs. God lives. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Amen. And let us continue. Let us rise and extend the peace of Christ to one another. I invite you to say today, Christ is risen. Christ has come again. Well, friends, now I invite you to go as resurrection people, as embodied witnesses of an empty tomb. Let us prove to one another, indeed, that the tomb is empty. May we be signs of resurrection life. And as you go, I invite you to practice resurrection in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen and amen. And go in peace. We hope that you've enjoyed this week's message and we look forward to connecting with you soon. If you'd like to experience our full church services, you can find them at youtube.com slash eastsidechurchatl. And if you'd like to support the work we're doing here at Eastside, you can find our giving portal at our website, eastsideatl.org. Be well.